0: Okay, from the, things that are, uh, from the things that aren't always as they appear File comes the following story from a southern friend Two delicate flowers of southern womanhood Were conversing on the porch swing of a large white pillared mansion The first woman said When my first child was born My husband built this beautiful mansion for me The second woman commented Well, isn't that nice? first woman continued when my second child was born my husband bought me that fine Cadillac automobile you see parked in that driveway again the second woman commented well isn't that nice the first woman boasted when my third child was born my husband bought me this exquisite diamond bracelet to which again the second woman commented well isn't that nice the first woman then asked her companion now what's your husband buy for you when you had your first child second woman replied My husband sent me to charm school. Charm school? Land sakes, child, what on earth for? To which the second woman responded, so that instead of saying, who cares, I learned to say, well, isn't that nice? (laughs) Now Now, I'm certain that most, if not all of us, can relate to such a story either as the teller or the listener on one hand we're not always aware of our boasting and on the other hand we're not nearly as joyful and excited as we should be at the blessings of others so in our ongoing study in the book of Romans we'll take a look specifically at how that relates to our passage but we're gonna take a look at what it means to be living a supernatural life or supernatural living as far as being a Christian You know. It's a life, the Christian life is a life that's to be lived out in the flesh. Actions that reflect what we say we believe in our heart. A lifestyle that's to be visible to the world around us. You know, turn with me in your Bibles, if you have them, to Romans chapter 12. Because we will see some of the characteristics of supernatural living that are to be true of all of us who have come to faith in Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 9, we read these words. It says let love be without hypocrisy abhor what is evil cling to what is good be devoted to one another in brotherly love give preference to one another in honor not lagging behind in diligence fervent in spirit serving the lord rejoicing in hope persevering in tribulation devoted to prayer contributing to the needs of the saints practicing hospitality bless those who persecute you bless and curse not Rejoice with those who rejoice, and weep with those who weep. Be of the same mind toward one another. Do not be haughty in mind, but associate with the lowly. Do not be wise in your own estimation. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. If possible, so as far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men." Never take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, saith the Lord. But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. For in so doing, you will reap or heap burning coals upon his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. During a uh, recent conversation, I was asked a question that is often asked of me, and it's also asked in a variety of set- settings, and it directly relates to this present passage. And, this, and the question was this the Gentleman said, Chuck, how can you know if you're truly a Christian? How can you know that if you came to recognition of your sin, as we've discussed through the book of Romans, that you've repented from your sin? and that you've responded with faith, believing that Jesus Christ indeed died for your sins. He said, how do you know that 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 decision that you made wasn't just some emotional thing? You weren't just caught up in the moment of something that was going on, and, and it was an emotionally driven decision. How do you know if it's true? How do you know if it's real? You know, and that's a great question. And it's a question that each of us should ask of ourselves. In fact, the Bible says to all of us, examine yourself to make sure you're truly in the faith. That's a very... Valid question It's a question that's It's a critical question Because it's, it has eternal consequences Or ramifications How do you know that the decision that you made To turn from sin and to trust in Christ Was a genuine one and not just an emotional one And the answer that I gave him Is the same answer that I had to come to conclusions In my own heart and that's this That when you consider As you, know, as you consider the fact that you know, Were you justified in a moment of time you know, Have you been made right with God has he brought you into his family? As the Bible says, those who believe in Christ, to them he's given the privilege to be called children of God to those who believe in his name. And the, and the answer to that question is very simple in some ways, but complex in others, but that's this. And that is that And when you examine your heart and you examine your lives, is your heart's desire to live a life that's pleasing to God? Is your heart's desire to, as we just discussed... To sacrifice your will for the will of God? Is your heart's desire to walk with God or to please God at all costs? Is your heart's desire then reflected in your actions? Because the Bible tells us that faith, by, by and in itself, is dead unless there is an outward expression of that faith in our heart. In other words, can we say that we've come to faith in Christ and then live any way that we want with no reflection of what the Bible says should be reflective of a heart of a person who's come to faith in Christ? See, if our desire is to move forward with God and towards God and obedience with God, then we can rest assured that the Spirit of God who lives within us will testify with our spirit. Bear witness, the Bible says, that we are children of God to those who believe in His name. When we don't want to do what's right, the Spirit of God is saying, wait, that's wrong. You know that's wrong. Why are you choosing to do that? Don't you know the wages of sin is death, the consequences that will follow? Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And as we struggle with making these decisions, there's that internal struggle that's always present because the, 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 the child of God has the Spirit of God living within us, telling us of the truth of what God has to say. See, it's as absurd as it is unbiblical to believe that anyone can live a faithful, fruitful Christian life on mere good intentions and warm feelings for the Lord and His work. The Christian life is a disciplined life. And in fact, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor fate when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you endure, God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? All discipline for the moment seems to be joyful, not joyful, but sorrowful, yet to those who are being trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness." the accountability that comes with being a Christian is by simple definition an accountability to a standard, a set standard. The question that we've got to ask ourselves is if God will discipline those of us who have come to faith in Christ when we're not obedient to God, the question you've got to ask is what standard does He use to discipline us or by what standard does He use to measure our life? And the Bible is very, is, is very clear. It's the Word of God. The Bible is God's standard of measurement for each one of us. Those who have not come to faith in Christ, the Bible reveals that we are sinners separated from God. Those who have come to faith in Christ, the Bible reveals how we are now to live as those who have come to faith. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, the the Apostle Paul writes that we are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Salvation is designed to produce an unmistakable pattern of godly and righteous living. When you and I come to faith in Christ, our life after that moment in time should be reflective of what God says His people are all about. There's no other way to get around that. It's as simple as that. And in our present text, Paul gives 25 distinct but closely related exhortations. And as we read through these 25, I want you to examine yourself, not just if you're in the faith and that anything that I'm talking about makes any sense. That's the first step. But the second is, is that for those who have given Christ, so to speak, our heart, have surrendered our hearts to him, believe that he died for our sins, have become children of God, now we look at this as the standard by which God measures us for the purpose of conforming us into the image of his son. God's desire for all of his kids is that we become more and more like Jesus every day. So as we look at these 25 distinct exhortations that are on here, measure them, as it were, against your own life. Do a self-examination. How are you doing on this point? How about the next one? How about the following one? And where we fall short, my encouragement to you as it is to me is, first of all, confess our, our shortcomings to God, which is confession of sin and agree what he's saying about our lives is true. And then ask him for help to be the kind of men and women that God wants us to be. Where we measure up, we praise God that He has brought us from where we used to be to where we are today, where we can say, that is true of my life. That does reflect who I am. I am visibly, uh, you know, from the world standpoint around me, as people look at my life, they can see that is true of my life. And in those cases, praise God because he who began a good work in us will continue to perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And as we all know that we're all constantly a work in progress. While we're justified at a moment in time and that'll never change, we become right with God in an instant. And that's the instant we recognize what God says is true. We're sinners. We we, we repent from that sin. We turn to God. We fall on our knees, so to speak, and ask Him for mercy. We believe that Christ died for our sins and and that He rose again from the dead. The Bible says at that moment in time that we're right, made right with God. Because God does that. From then on out, we want to live a life that's pleasing to God. So we're going to take a look at this. And, uh, you know, I'm reminded of a... um, I'm reminded of, a, of a, a ride operator when I was p- putting this all together, kind of like a roller coaster ride operator. I saw a bumper sticker, but I, I, I don't think I'll share that one. But I saw something else that I think I, I, I can kind of uh, clarify what, what, what this is all about. But when you look at there's 25 exhortations that are here or distinct characteristics of supernatural living. All I can tell you is this. Sit down, buckle up, and hold on. So, number one. We're going to take a look at what we'll call self-duties or or self-disciplines that has to do with our personal responsibilities as believers before God. In verse 9, we read the words, Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, and cling to what is good. In this verse, Paul mentions three self-duties, self-disciplines, as it were, of supernatural living. The first one is this, love without hypocrisy to love without hypocrisy you know the greatest of the Christian uh, virtues or or the greatest virtue of the Christian life is love agape love you know the use of this word agape was foreign and rare in pagan Greek literature and the reason was very simple because the concept that was represented unselfish self-giving willful devotion was so uncommon in that culture that it was even ridiculed and despised as a sign of weakness you know and who can't relate to that you know, having been involved in athletics all my life, you know, having worked with the Rams, working with the Angels, being involved with professional sports, there is a common misconception throughout all who, do, who have not come to faith in Christ and don't understand what it means to be a Christian. And even before I became a Christian, my misunderstanding was that Christians were weak people. You know, it's kind of a sissy, la la, milk toast kind of guys. You know, it's like who would want to be one of them? You know what? sissy, you know, and it's kind of like man. You know what? They were anything less than the macho kind of image that pervades that particular industry. And yet, when I look at that, and I look at historically, you know, the whole idea of being selfish, of being selfless, unselfish, self-giving, willfully devoting yourself to another—that uh, that whole idea represents one of weakness. Uh, And so it's no wonder that there was a misunderstanding of what agape or spiritual love was all about. But in the New Testament, it's very clear because it's proclaimed as the supreme virtue. The supreme virtue. Agape love centers on the needs and the welfare of the ones loved and will pay whatever price necessary to meet those needs. And I'll tell you what, having come to understand it and from personal experience and knowing those around me who demonstrate that kind of love, there is nothing weak about that whatsoever. To live an unselfish life, to consider others as more important than yourself is a sign of supernatural living because it, it is against everything that sin nature holds. Me, myself, and I, I come first, whatever makes me happy, blah, 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 blah. But you know what, supernatural living is agape love. You know, God himself is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. 1 John four sixteen. Think about this. Jesus made it unequivocally... unequivocally I'm starting to sound like the governor. I'll get to that. Don't go crazy on me now. But, uh, but, uh, but, but I know what I want to say. Um, he made it perfectly clear... That the greatest virtue is love because the greatest two commandments, number one, are what? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then what? And you'll love your neighbor as yourself. For in those two commandments summarize all of the word of God. To love God first with all your heart. Be sold out for God. All your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And then to love your neighbor in the same way as you already love yourself. That's the whole, the whole Bible summarizing that. Love is the greatest of all, of all virtues as far as Christians are concerned. In fact, you know, we talked about using spiritual gifts. But you know what the Bible says? That without love, they're nothing. In 1 Corinthians 13, you know, the Bible says that if we speak with the tongues of men and of angels and, and do not have love, you know, you're, you've become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. If you have no, all knowledge and you know everything and you can share that with people, but yet they don't think you love them, they don't care to listen to you, it profits you nothing. You know, there's an old saying it says it doesn't matter what you know. People won't care what you know until they know that you care. Then they'll listen to you. The whole virtue of love is huge. May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another. First Thessalonians three twelve. As we go down through this, the sufferings, he said, He endured much endurance and afflictions, hardship and distresses and beatings and imprisonments and tumults and labors and sleeplessness and hunger. Paul served the Lord's people in the Holy Spirit, the Bible says, in genuine love. Second Corinthians 6, 4 through 6. How can you know for certain that you are a Christian as defined by God? The key is love. Genuine love is so integral to supernatural living that John declares this in 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. In other words, a person who shows no evidence of agape love has no claim on Christ or eternal life. It's a simple way to test ourselves. Notice also the Bible says that this love is without hypocrisy. And hypocrisy is this. I'll love you if you love me. I'll do this for you if you do this for me. And I've mentioned it often, and in fact I was reminded again this week as I officiated a wedding, but that is that, you know, weddings and marriage isn't 50-50. It's not, I'll do this for you if you do this for me. It's 100% both people given of themselves to the other. It's 100%. It's people trying to outgive each other. It's not taking, taking count of why I did this last week, you owe me this, now I'll do this. And, and keeping track of charts and, and graphs and who's up and who's down and whose turn is it this time and you were right last time and that's my turn to be right even if I'm wrong, it's my turn to be right. You know? And we just kind of gets crazy. You know? But this love that God's talking about without hypocrisy is that you know, it, it, it's what you see is what you get. I don't pat you on the back and tell you it's selfless love. I don't pat you on the back and tell you I love you and then go out and slam you behind your back. You know, before I was a Christian, the thing that turned me off about Christians was this whole idea of hypocrisy. That what I heard them say they believed, they didn't demonstrate in how they lived their life. And there was nothing exciting or or there was nothing attractive about that. There's nothing that draws people to Christ when we say one thing and live something else. Let's face it, people are sick of hypocrites. We're all tired of it. It's about time we get someone in our life who is what you see is what you get. Let love be without hypocrisy. He goes on and says this, abhor what is evil. Abhor what is evil means to hate evil. To hate evil. You know, I often hear parents tell their their children, said, oh, don't say hate. You know, I hate broccoli. Whatever, you know, but oh, don't say hate. And I understand the context of that. But I also want you to understand that it's okay to hate. In fact, not only is it okay to hate, it is promoted as something God's people are to do, and that is to hate evil. Specifically, to hate evil. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Proverbs 8, 13. Hatred of of evil is the other side of love. It's almost as if it's a a two-sided coin. On one side we love, on the other side we hate evil. You know, we often hear people talking about, you know, Jesus hated sin. ...but love the sinner. And that's true. And we need to always recognize and understand that. God loves people. But he doesn't turn his back on behavior that he calls an abomination in his sight. God judges sin. God hates sin. God hates sin because it destroys people whom we already said God loves give you an illustration of that. This past week, I was spending the time in a recovery room of a hospital uh, with a family member who was recovering from surgery, and you all know because I told you last time how much I enjoy that. And, um, but, but anyway, while I, was there, um, while I was there, I just noticed that, you know what? what's really interesting about the health profession is that you've got people there who love people, and they love healthy people, and they want to take sick people and turn them into healthy people. That's what they get paid to do. But you know what? That's what they do because that's what... I, I believe that that's what they want to do because they love people. You have to love people to want to put up with sick people. Right? Simple. I mean, man, think about it. It's like, you know, I already told you. I'd be like, looks like you're going to die. You know? You know? But but what's interesting about that is, is is that is that, you know, you got people that are there and they're like, you know, they, they want sick people to become healthy people so guess what they do man they spend a lot of time studying to be able to recognize disease studying to be able to figure out a way to combat that disease they don't tolerate disease they don't tolerate sickness they don't make room in a person's life for oh we'll try to confine that sickness to this one area of your life no we are dedicated to eradicate what is infecting your body because we know that illness and disease and affliction will not be content to stay in one area of your body. The desire of disease and sickness is to destroy the body, to kill. Now, if you're in a medical profession, you don't tolerate that. You come up with every way that you can to eradicate it. And in fact, you hate it because you see what it does to the lives of people that you care about. In the same way, God's people are to hate evil. Evil. We're not to tolerate evil. We're not to make room in our own lives, yet alone room in society, for evil. We must hate evil. And the reason for it is because evil will destroy lives of people that we say we love. We've got to hate it. There's a subtle progression towards tolerance of evil that's warned often in Scripture, an example of Psalm 1, 1 through 2, that says, "...how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers notice the progression first we walk in it then we take a stand and say it's okay then we sit down and we become comfortable and relaxed in it and the Bible says that the man of God is the opposite of that we don't walk with evil we don't sit and tolerate evil you know we don't stand with evil and say that it's okay we don't peacefully coexist with it we must learn to hate evil as God does we need to learn to hate the things that God himself hates In Proverbs 6, 6 16 through 19, it says, These six things which the Lord hates, yes, even seven, which are an abomination to Him. They are haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that run rapidly to evil, a false witness who utters lies, and one who spreads strife among the brothers. Obviously, this isn't an exhaustive list, but it certainly is a good place to start. The Bible clearly teaches God hates these things. He hates haughty eyes, people that think they're better than other people. Who look down upon others because their lot in life isn't the same for whatever reason. Whether it's the color of their skin or the, or the amount of money in their bank account or the position in their business. They look down on others because somehow they've made themselves or elevated themselves in their own mind, I may add you, better than those around you. God says he hates that. Because from God's standpoint, guess what? There's only one God worthy to be worshipped and praised and all the rest of us, it's a level playing field. You know, it's like they told you the story of Rudy. There's only one God... And I ain't him. Do you understand that? Do I understand that? Because it will affect the way that we look at others. Haughty eyes. A lying tongue. A lying tongue. You talk about a nation that has learned to tolerate a lying tongue. It is absolutely incredible to me. We got a sitting president who comes out in a magazine that he thought was coming out in December instead of November. And he tells the world that the world owes him an apology for holding him to his word, his lying tongue, lied in a deposition, lied in a hearing, lied before the nation and says, you can't hold me accountable for that. God says we need to hate lying tongues. We're to judge people not only by what they say but ultimately what they do. It's just incredible to me when you think about it. Hands that shed innocent blood. You know, when we look back in human history and we see what happened in Nazi Germany and we see the six million or more people that were executed under Hitler's regime, And we think back on that. You know, in hindsight, the world is all, man, up in arms today. But do you realize when it was going on that no one was saying anything? There was only a handful of people who were a voice of reason against those who were shedding innocent blood. There were only a handful of nations that stood up and said that's evil, that it's wrong, that it has to be stopped. In hindsight, everything's 20-20. Wow, look at that. that. Wasn't that an atrocity? Wasn't that wrong? Somebody should have done something about it. We see it happening all around the world. There's a nation in this world today that has, that has murdered 30 million innocent people. And that nation is this country, the United States. Over the last 30 years, 30 million innocent children have been murdered. All under the umbrella of a woman's right to choose. I just need to clarify something from a scriptural standpoint. And people, you know, some of you get get it turned off and say, well, this is a political statement? No, it's not. It's a biblical statement, and that is this. God never gives any individual or any nation the right to shed innocent blood. Period. Individuals have the right to defend themselves. The Bible speaks clearly of self-defense. Nations have a right to judge criminals who execute or murder other individuals, and the Bible says that they can do so in order to serve justice. But even Governor Bush in the debate made a brilliant statement when he said if you're talking about the death penalty for the purpose of revenge, I don't agree with that. If you're talking about it for the purpose of justice and sending a message to society that life is valuable, then I'm for it. And that's a right definition according to scripture. It's a wonderful definition. And we need to recognize and understand that we need to, we're at a critical juncture in this country, in our country's history. And we need to understand when we go to vote that we need to understand what the people we're voting for say they believe in what they stand for. And when one of the candidates say, I believe in a woman's right to choose, what he's really saying is, I don't have a problem with 30 million children's lives being shed because we're too lazy to, to use birth control as a method to stop conception. We would rather use abortion as a method of birth control. God help us and we need to recognize and understand that when we go to vote for the person that we want in leadership because we will get what we vote for and we will get according to God what we deserve we need to recognize that and understand that and scripture is very clear God hates people who, who, who have lying tongues. We need, to, we need to look at that and look at the record and examine it. We need to be informed about why. You know, it's amazing to me when you talk to people about why are you going to vote for who you vote for. Well, because, you know, uh, it's no different than people say, well, why do you go to the church you do? Well, because my family goes there. I've always gone there. What does that mean? Well, because I'm this, I'm this you know, I'm a Democrat or I'm a Republican or I'm an independent. That's why I vote for what I vote for. But do you understand the issues? Do you understand what you're voting for? Do you understand the person that will represent you? Do they really represent what you say you want to happen in this country? And we go, he goes on, he talks about feet that run rapidly to evil, a heart that devises wicked plans. Man, if we haven't seen that in this, in, in this process, what have we seen? People that are coming up with ways that, hey, you know what, I want this more than anything in the world, and we need to devise some way, regardless of what it is, will pull out stops to destroy the lives of people. It's just amazing to me that you can have somebody sitting in office that says, it really doesn't matter that our president lied to the people, and then pull out the same card and say, well, this guy did something 24 years ago that has nothing to do with today, but now we're going to judge him by the standard we said not to judge somebody by I mean, it's just amazing to me. We need to recognize that we are to hate evil. And the other side of that is that we should also cleave to what is good to cling to what is good. I like that word because the word has to do with the leaving and cleaving philosophy that's found in the book of Genesis, speaking of marriage. For this cause, speaking of marriage, a man is to leave his father and his mother and is to cleave to his wife. The idea is that of bonding with another individual to become two people becoming one. Now, think about it in the concept of what we're talking about. We are to hate evil, not to tolerate it whatsoever. To measure the words and the actions of people by an objective standard, and that is the Word of God. What God says is wrong is wrong, period. What God hates, He hates and will for eternity. The Word of God doesn't change. It is the same yesterday, today, and forever, because God is the same. The Word of God is eternal. The Word of God will be the standard by which God judges all of humanity ...for all of eternity. We're to hate evil. The flip side of it is... ...we're to cling or cleave to what is good. We're to be bonded to it... ...so that there is no separation between a child of God... ...and that which is good. Now how does that happen? Well, we already learned. I urge you therefore, brethren, by the mercy of God... ...to present your bodies as a living sacrifice... ...holy and acceptable to God... ...which is your reasonable spiritual service... ...or reasonable service of worship. Don't be conformed to this world... ...but transformed by the renewing of your mind... ...that you may know what... What the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. How do we know what's good? We offer ourselves to God. We commit ourselves to living a life that's pleasing to God. And as we live our lives and our minds are renewed by the word of God, we learn what is evil. We learn what is good. We object, we object to those things that are evil. We turn from evil. And we cling to what is good. I mean, cling to it. It should be inseparable. The life of the believer and that which is good should be one and the same and visible to the world around us. We should hang on to those things. We don't compromise those. We don't sell those out. They don't become less of a plank for our platform because it's not comfortable to be able to share that message because the population doesn't want to hear it. God's people aren't worried about what the population thinks. God's people worry about what God thinks in Him alone, and we represent Him. We're ambassadors to this world. Our citizenship is in heaven. We'll talk in Romans 13 about our responsibilities here while we're here on earth, but you know what? We're not from here, and we're going back to be with God. When Jesus comes, he will collect all of those who have come to faith and bring him to himself. Where he is, we shall be for all of eternity. What a wonderful truth. But in the meantime, we've got work to do. We're to cling to what is good. I like the idea of kind of like hanging on to the edge of a cliff. I mean, think about it. That's the world we live in, man. I mean, we're, we're, we're hanging off of a canyon and there's a, gr- there's a grand canyon of evil all around us. And we need to hang on for all of our life and all of our strength and all of our heart and all of our mind for what is good. Okay, that's three. Wow. (coughs) Number two, our second area of responsibility is what I call sibling duties. That has to do with how we are to interact as children of God, the family of God, our relationship. In verses 10 through 13 we read Be devoted to one another In brotherly love Paul's list of 10 what we call family or sibling duties Starts again with the, the highest virtue And that is love That we're to love one another The litmus test of being a Christian Is that we love one another Be devoted to one another in brotherly love Love is the highest virtue that's noted Once again that whole idea of brotherly love Think of what Jesus said in John 13, 35 he says the world will know that you are a Christian by your love for one another. In a very simple way, God reminds me over and over again that I have truly become a child of God, that my faith in Christ was genuine, that it's real, that God did what he said he would do in my heart because I have a love for other Christians who before I couldn't stand to be around. Just think about the simplicity of that illustration. Before I came to faith in Christ, I couldn't stand Christians. I thought, like I said, they were toast, they were weak people, they were, you know, whatever you want to call them, whatever you thought that they were, and I'm sure many of you can identify. And I thought, I never want to be like them. But the compelling love of Christ drew me to himself, and when I gave my life to Christ, he also changed my heart toward those who have given themselves to Christ as well. We've become brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow heirs, of the inheritance that we have to look forward to the Bible says that even though we don't always agree with one another and there are some people I'd rather not spend social time with but I tell you this, I have a genuine love for them in my heart because that I know we have a common father and that we have a common savior in Jesus Christ our Lord to be devoted to love. Honor has with it the idea of being able to, to look upon another person, not to give hypocritical praise uh, in hopes of having them compliment us in return, but to, to honor is to show genuine appreciation and admiration for another person in the family of God. You know, when I look at others who have come to faith in Christ, I give them preference or honor because that I know that they're a child of God. I know that Jesus Christ died for their sins. I know that Jesus died for them and they've accepted his death on on, on their behalf. And because of that, they are honored vessels of God saved by the same Lord that saved me. And because of that, I give them the due honor that they deserve. Not that there's anything in and of any, any of us ourselves because all the praise goes to the Lord, but I can honor them for being a brother and sister in Christ. We're to be diligent. The whole idea of being diligent is to be excellent in what we do. Last time we were together, I used the word heartily. That whatever we do, we're to do heartily as unto the Lord, for it's the Lord God whom we serve. The idea of being diligent is to be excellent in everything that we do. We talked last time that God gifts each one of us who have come to faith in Christ with a gift or gifts to be used to build up the body of Christ and to bring glory to Jesus. And and the the idea here is that we become diligent in what we do. If we serve others, that we do so with diligence and enthusiasm and vigor and, and we have a smile on our face. You know, so many Christians, and I think about even before I came to Christ, and I think about people even today, we walk around with the biggest sour pusses, and we walk around like we were baptized in vinegar. It's like, you know, it's like, man, I mean, make a joyful noise unto the Lord, not some unhealthy grunt. I mean, we all walk around like, where's the food basket go for the motel ministry? Here, right here, right here. I'm gonna give you that. I hope. Hey, God bless them. I hope that all works out for them. Yeah, man. Uh, you know, it's like, man... Are you excited at all about what the Lord's done in your life? Do you realize you've been bought with a price and it's there for Him whom we serve? Do you realize He saved you from the gates of hell? You'll no longer be held accountable for sin. You won't be judged accordingly. You are, the, the wrath of God is withheld from you who have come to faith in Christ. You're going to heaven. You're not going to hell. He's given you spiritual, eternal life. Today, He's given you joy. Jesus said, I came that you might have joy and you'd have it abundantly. Do you even begin to understand and believe who you are in Christ? We're to be diligent in our service to the Lord and do so joyfully and heartily with with a with, with a smile on our face. I talk to people. It's like, man, we're in a spiritual battle. Yes. And the point is, well, what are we gonna do? Hey, listen, I read the book. We already won. <clears throat> we already won. Just go out and, you know, and, and join the game. Fight the good fight. Be steadfast, and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord because your toil is not in vain. It's okay. And they look at you like, oh, yeah. <laughs> wow. And then they go to the next person. We're in a theme to be And that person goes, yeah, I know, man, life sucks, you know. They're like, come on, you know. It's like exhortation. We're to build each other up in the faith. We're to be fervent in the spirit, man. We're to be boiling over. It has to do with our attitude. The word fervent was, wow, man, it was like boiling over. Now, we've got to be careful sometimes because you can be so excited about your faith in Christ and so excited about what the Lord's doing, so excited about everything that's going on. You know, we can come in and just you know, blow people away we got to have discernment we got to have a little discretion we got to you know earn the right to be heard we got to make sure that they understand we love them and we care for them because let's say frankly before I came to Christ and you know, I met people that were way overboard I mean they didn't attract me to them You know what I'm saying You know like the crazy dude that used to wear the rainbow hat or the rainbow hair dude at all the football games with the John 316 sign you know before I came to Christ I wasn't thinking man I hope someday I'm like him <laughs> You know, I can't say that, you know, he made me envious of walking with the Lord. But, but the point is, we're to be fervent, and fervent in spirit, to serve the Lord, realizing, you know what? We're serving God. We are servants of God. We're serving the Lord. Be steadfast, immovable, always abound in the work of the Lord, because you know that your toil, your hard work, isn't in vain. Why? Because we're serving Christ. You know, if I thought that I did what I did to serve you and look for, you know, attaboys, thank you, oh man, that was awesome, thanks for coming, thanks for being here, hey, you know what, I ought to quit doing this a long time ago, because that just doesn't happen. So funny, is you know, most of the time, the only people I hear from are the people that come down right afterwards and go, you know, I really think you should have said this. And I go, really? And I say, thank you for coming by. Now, see, that's, that's becoming more and more like Jesus. Because I can remember a day when I just say, Hey, you know what? Go take a hike and go somewhere else. Yeah. No, wait, now now I say, Well, isn't that nice? <laughs> yeah, growing in your faith. Learning and growing. Well, isn't that nice? Serve the Lord. Hope. The whole idea of hope and perseverance. We've already seen that in our study through Romans, you know. Hope and perseverance. That we're to have hope. Rejoicing in hope. We know we're steadfast and movable because we have hope. We're well done. One day we'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. Man, the hope that we have to look forward to those words. To see that day that's coming as we see the day drawing near. To eagerly anticipate what will be revealed to us and in us the day that our Lord returns. Man, that's exciting stuff. The whole idea of perseverance has to do with trust tribulation. And tribulation will always bring about a prayer life. I'll tell you what, I I can't remember the last time that I've ever prayed over something more than I'm praying over this coming election. Man, God has had me on my knees. God has had me thinking about it constantly. Be anxious for nothing, I'm reminded, but in everything in prayer and supplication let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ. But I also know tempered with that prayer is a responsibility to go and take action. See, the Christian life is a life of action and also a life of attitude. You know, as we go through tribulation, God draws us to himself. I am convinced, and the longer that I live, I'm more convinced that God's best method of keeping us close to him is to allow, allow us to be persecuted and tribulation in our life because that's what God uses us to, uses to keep us close to him. You know, when everything is going great and we can't see a need in the world, I guarantee you, we don't spend much time in prayer. We don't spend much time in in conversation with the Lord. We don't spend much time in the word of God But man, when our world gets rattled and shaken and the very foundation begins to crumble, we turn to the word of God and we turn to God in prayer and we say, Lord, help me. God, save me. God, clarify this for me. Lord, what are you doing? Which direction are we going? Which way do you want me to go? What should I do? What should I say? How should I respond? Lord, if any man lacks wisdom, you say, let, it, let us ask of you who give generously and above reproach. You know what? That's what God does. He brings us to himself. And it's all because he, he wants us to have continual fellowship with him. The Bible says that we're to contribute. The word contributing has to do with contributing to the needs of others. It's a word that's translated from the word koinonia, to have in fellowship or common with one another. That we're to contribute to the needs of the saints. That as we see God has blessed us with a resource that we can in turn use to bless another person in the name of Jesus Christ. We're to do that. The Christian life is a visible life. It's a life that takes action. We contribute to others Paul says that we're to be generous and ready to share. Instruct those who are rich in this present world to be generous and ready to share with those who have not. 1 Timothy 6, 17 and 18. Also, practicing hospitality has with it the idea of being able to not only to to meet the needs of those around us, but it takes it even further than that, and that is to look for those needs. It's one thing to have the need be brought to us, It's another thing to be proactive as believers, looking out at the lives of others around us and trying to sense what their need is and then meeting that need. We're to be proactive, practicing hospitality. You know, in biblical days, they didn't have Holiday Inns. They didn't have Hyatt's. They didn't have Marriott's. They didn't have any of that. And so when a person would come to town, there was only one place to stay, and that was in the home of believers, and the home of the believer would be a place of refuge and refreshment and, 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 and fellowship in the Lord. The home of believers who were many times persecuted for opening their home to others who followed Christ that said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God unto salvation. You're welcome here, brother, sister in Christ. I devote devoted to you in brotherly love. I show you honor and preference. I, I'm diligent and fervent about my faith in the Lord. I'm here to serve not only the Lord first, but also you. I have hope in what God says. I'm not worried about the persecution that goes on and on and I pray for those around me I contribute to them and 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 on and on it goes. The Bible says that we have those responsibilities it goes on to tell us in verses 14 through 16 that we have social duties and that has to do with the people around us that, that, that are believers and unbelievers, it's everybody. First it starts in our own hearts, then it extends to the family of God, then it's also to everybody and notice what he says that we're to bless those around us in verse 14 bless those who persecute you Bless those who persecute you. That's exactly what Jesus said. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you. Luke 6, 27 and 28. Jesus referred to the same self-giving, heartfelt, unhypocritical, willing love, agape love, that Paul's referred to in Romans chapter 12. In fact, he went on and made it very practical. He said, whoever hits you on the cheek, offer him the other. Whoever takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him either. Give to everyone who asks of you, and whoever takes away from you what is yours, do not demand it back from them. Those are tough words. That's why it's supernatural living, because I'll guarantee you that you know my natural bent, when somebody punches me on one side of my face, I'm not going to turn and let him hit it on the other. I was taught to duck and then follow with a left hook. See,, you know, and, and we've got to understand, but that's not who we are in Christ any longer. That we're to bless those who persecute. We're to curse not. We're not to go around slamming people that are persecuting us. But we're to do good. We're to overcome evil with good, and we'll see that. We're to rejoice with one another. You know, I stop and I laugh about that story, and I think it's a beautiful illustration of many of us in our walk with Christ as it comes to the blessing of others. You know, instead of saying, who cares, which is really what we're thinking, we say, well, isn't that nice? Well, God bless you. Isn't that good for you? so your business is doing really well and you got a big old house and you got nice new cars and you got all kinds of money in the bank and everything's going for good. Well, rejoice in the Lord, brother. And you're thinking, man, you know what, Lord? I don't understand it because he's a lot dumber than me. And I deserve it a lot more than he does. And I don't understand why he made the team and, and I didn't make the team. I don't understand why he got a scholarship and I didn't get a scholarship. I don't understand why she's going to that school and I'm going to this school. I don't understand why their company got awarded the contract and our company didn't. And, you know, I mean, that's natural. But we're called to live a supernatural life. We're called to understand that God's in control, that God is sovereign, that we can rejoice with those who rejoice. We can't say, praise God, thank God that He's chosen to bless you. Because, you know what, in fact, if I could have, I would have chosen you as well. God bless you. Instead of always thinking about, well, why not me? Praise God, thank you for blessing them. This isn't always about us. You talk about pride, arrogant people thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Isn't that pride the root of all that? I deserve it and they don't. We need to change our attitude and our mindset to praise God. Hey, that's awesome, man. I'm glad. I am rejoicing with the blessings that God has given you. Praise God and use them to his glory. That's awesome. We're also to weep with those who weep. You know what? Sometimes we just got to shut up and we just got to cry. You know, there's a time where even Jesus, the shortest verse in the Bible, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Jesus wept at the heartache and the compassion that he showed toward Mary and Martha at the passing of their brother Lazarus, even though he knew that in short time he would be raised from the dead. He wept. He mourned. Or to weep with those who weep. There are times where there's nothing you can say but your mere presence alone and the tears that you shed are a tremendous encouragement and exhortation to the person that you're with. You know, as a teacher, as a preacher, you know, we laughed about spiritual gifts and how we all want to, you know, do it. You know, it's like you want to be able to explain to them, let me just share with you the promises of God. And if that's appropriate, great. Or let me share with you, you know, the wage of sin is death, the consequence of our actions. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. Whatever you sow, you're going to reap. And so, hey, therefore, you're just experiencing the discipline and judgment of God. Isn't that wonderful? And their life is shattered at that moment. See, you know what? They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And even if you have all knowledge of Scripture, but you don't have love, it profits you nothing. See, the greatest Christian virtue is love, because love we can apply in every situation. To weep with those who weep, to be like minded and the things of God, to realize that, you know what, that we need to be like-minded. We're to have a common purpose, a common goal, a common desire, like-minded, to be humble, not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. And in closing, as he goes through and he looks at verses 17 through 21, we've already seen that we're not to take revenge. We're not to take revenge. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never. What part of never don't we understand? It is never right to pay back evil for evil. We want to reflect Christ in our life, even Jesus as he died on the cross, said Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. First Peter chapter two said that he who, who bore our sins on the cross did not endure the hostility of men, did not desire to get even with them, but he entrusted himself to God the Father who judges righteously. We're never to get evil, uh, to, to, to enact uh, vengeance or revenge upon another. We're to respect what is right. Respect right. Respect what is right in the sight of all men. To do the right thing. And how do we know what's right? The Word of God clearly teaches us. Do the right thing. And as far as, a, as possible for each of us to live peacefully with one another. And that's conditional. Because, you know, we can't always... Impact or affect how others respond to us But when we know that someone has something against us We're to go and we're to make peace with them As far as it is possible with us We are to initiate that process To make peace if, 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 if Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace To reconcile God to man Jesus, the Prince of Peace Came to reconcile God and man You know, you think about the applications of all this It's incredible It's incredible it's, it's where we live. It's where we're at. It's in our homes. It's with our families. It's with our friends. It's in our neighborhoods. It's, it's, it's in our businesses. It's on our teams. It's in our schools. It's everywhere. We are to live a godly life and to be visible to the world around us that what has taken place in our heart spills over into our actions. What we say we believe is lived out in the flesh. We're to first of all and foremost give our hearts to Christ because first and foremost we're to come to faith in Him. Because we could try to do all these things on this list and if we haven't come to faith in Christ, our righteousness is as filthy rags. Our works are not pleasing to God because it's by grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It's a gift from God so that none of us can boast before God. We come to faith in Christ and then what? We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. And we're not conformed to this world. We don't pay back evil with evil as the world does. We don't think of ourselves first as the world does. We don't. As you go down through the list, look at the world around us. We're not conformed or poured into that mold. But we break the mold by a renewed mind through the word of God. We are going to be like Jesus whether we like it or not. So let's go in obedience so that God doesn't have to discipline his children whom he loves. Walk with him in obedience and every day we'll become more and more conformed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. And we will reflect what God says is supernatural living. Father, we just thank you and we praise you. We thank you for your word. We just pray for obedience in our own hearts that we will walk with you. And we ask these things in Christ's name, amen.